be reading this morning from the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, who boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you are our confidence. You are our fortress, our deliverer, our redeemer, our savior. We ask that your word be proclaimed boldly through the message of your servant Jeff this morning, and that as we go from this place, we would be doers of your word and not hearers only. We love you, Lord, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Michelle. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Romans chapter 3. We'll be in the very last verses of Romans 3 uh, this week. And so um, every election cycle is the same, isn't it? Never changes. We, the voters, are subject to a barrage of ads designed to tout the credentials and achievements of every politician. Well, that's understandable. They are trying out for a job, aren't they? I mean, they're just trying to give you their resume. Here's what I've achieved. Here's what I've accomplished. But still, it makes us a little uneasy when people brag about themselves. It's even worse, though, when the surrogates do it, when they have, like, the voiceover that comes on the commercial. Yeah. And the same is true with social media. There, there has probably never been invented an environment that is more conducive to our instinct to brag it up like social media. Social media has made it possible for us to take the art of humble bragging to new heights. You know what humble bragging is, right? I am just so, I'm so humbled to announce that I'm awesome. Or smuggle bragging. This one I love. You know, like, you know, you know what smuggle bragging is. Well, they try to smuggle in a compliment for themselves when they're giving you a compliment. Oh, congratulations on your new baby. We potty trained our baby at 11 months. <laughs> or the worst one of all is the race to the bottom bragging. This is, you know, they, somebody hears that somebody is suffering and they've got to one-up you on their suffering and their victimization, which honestly is a, in our current culture is a pox on our house right now. No matter how unsavory or off-putting self-congratulations or self-promotion and bragging is in any of these arenas, Hollywood, Oscars night, social media, politics, folks, there is no arena in which the instinct to boast and brag of our accomplishments is more out of place than in the church and before our God. There is no place where it is less welcome. And Paul now is going to zoom in on justification by faith. He's been telling us a lot of things, actually. (laughs) I mean, between Romans 1 and uh, the end of Romans 3 here, he's told us a lot about the nature of righteousness Okay, we've learned what righteousness is. We learn how the righteousness of God comes to us. But now what he's going to do is going, he's going to really focus on something he's introduced called justification by faith. So from 327 to 425, Paul is going to fixate 
on this idea. Now, next week, he's going to give us his paragon. He's going to give us the archetype of justifying faith, which is Abraham. We're going to learn that. But today, he's going to close out this section here with just some ideas that, gra- that we need to grasp when it comes to grace. We learn that grace cancels all boasting. Grace cancels all boasting in personal achievement. Number one, in personal achievement. Romans 3, 27, <clears throat> he says, where then is boasting? Well, in the Christian faith, it's excluded. It's just totally excluded. Now, this raises an interesting question, though. Should Christians ever revel in accomplishments? Should we ever celebrate finish lines? Should we ever lift up the value of hard work in the Christian faith? I think the answer to this clearly is yes. Now, you may think because of all of this talk about grace being the free gift that is delivered to the empty and open hands of faith, we've been talking about how salvation is by grace through faith and nothing else, that the Bible would be anti-work or that the Bible would be somehow against achievement or celebrating the value of effort. And we would be wrong if we thought that. Proverbs 14, 23 states this, there is profit in all hard work, but endless talk leads only to poverty. And the parable of the good steward in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus gives us this parable. It's called the good steward. But essentially, he compares himself to a master of a home, of an estate, who's going off for a long, long trip, a long time. And before he leaves for his trip, he, he gives a portion uh, uh, of his estate to three different servants. And he gives different amounts to manage for those servants based on their ability and their previous faithfulness. And when he comes home from the trip, he calls those servants before him and they are to give an account for their stewardship of his estate. And two of the servants make good. They invest his property, they get a return, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. He says, good work. But then to the last servant, do you remember what he says? The guy comes before him and says, actually, I didn't do anything with anything you gave me. I took it out in the backyard and I hid it, and I dug a hole six feet down and I hid it so that just to keep it safe. And the master says, I'm not all about keeping it safe. I'm all about investing the treasure for the kingdom of God so the kingdom of God will grow. And then remember what he says to this servant, you wicked and lazy servant. And he cast him out into outer darkness. You better believe that the New Testament teaches that God affirms the value of work. Paul greets those who worked diligently in the gospel in Romans chapter 16, 6 and 12. He says, I want to greet you, those of you who have worked tirelessly for the gospel of Jesus. He even recites his own effort to the Corinthians. The Corinthians in that book are calling into question his effort as an apostle. And so several times in that book, he he has to recall the effort that he put in to preach the gospel there. And he says, the grace of God in 1 Corinthians 15 is working tirelessly through me to do the work for God. He instructed Timothy to compensate those who worked hard at the task of preaching and teaching, rendering to them double honor. Paul and James agree. 
that genuine Christian faith always results, the outgrowth of it is hard work for the kingdom. And Paul said to the Ephesians, he says this, we are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of ourselves. Why? So that no one can boast, so that no one can stand before God and brag or boast in their achievements, their religious works before God. But then he goes on to say, for we are God's work. We're the work. We're God's workmanship, and we work. We are, we are designed, we were made to do the things that God has planned before the foundation of the world for us to do. In his book, The Great Omission, Dallas Willard, philosopher Dallas Willard sums it up well when he writes, grace is not opposed to effort, grace is opposed to earning. Uh, and what Dallas, Dallas is saying there is this, is that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, salvation by grace through faith, is not in any way allergic to the idea of strenuous effort, but it is allergic, it is opposed to earning our way. Because the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ results in great effort. It results and grows out into great effort. What Paul is here referring in this passage in Romans 3 in terms of boasting, he's talking about boasting in one's pride of personal achievement in relation to Christ's saving work and no one who has received unmerited and unmerited gift of favor has the right to stand before God and to brag of their achievements confident in their own righteousness. To do so, one would be ignorant of so great a salvation that we have been given, and two, it would be fantastically ignorant of the enemy that we face. To illustrate this, uh, I read this last week about the French emperor Napoleon Bonaparte, who invaded Russia in 1812 from what is today modern Poland. The battle began auspiciously. Well, what more could you want? You have a genius military commander by his own admission. <laughs> and he's leading the greatest army in the world. If you look at a timeline of Napoleon's, Napoleon's uh, wars, it is, this guy was nothing but a warlord. And he's the best, and his army is the best, the Grand Army of France, numbering a half a million troops a recently auctioned letter, a 200-year-old letter has surfaced in which he proudly boasted in the letter while he was trying to take Russia that Russia would soon be in hand. He was going to destroy the Kremlin and blow it to rubble, signing his letter, the Emperor of Russia. <laughs> And what he could not know and what he did not know is that Russian the Russian roads he planned to march were in such poor condition that resupplying would not be an option. Their plans to raid small towns for supplies along the way did not materialize due to the shocking poverty of those roadside villages and towns. They could not be resupplied. He also greatly underestimated the savagery of, Rome, uh, of Russian troops and the impenetrable terrain due to the weather. As a result, his troops suffered 300,000 dead and after such a stunning defeat, do you think that the emperor of Russia would learn his lesson? No. I'm sure you're aware of the Battle of Waterloo. His last. He lost it. 
What's, in, what's interesting is during that battle in trying to take Waterloo or that northern area of Europe, he wrote three letters back to Paris saying the battle is well in hand to let them know that he was going to win. And then shortly after, he was deposed and exiled to the Mediterranean. And in the same way, we can vastly overestimate our spiritual resources with respect to sin, thinking that we bring something, some resources, some power, some willpower, talent, or maybe our innate goodness to the fight. And we can dramatically underestimate also the instruments of war that have been trained against us by all of our enemies, the darkness of this world, which is becoming increasingly dark, and the schemes of Satan, which oftentimes we're not even aware of. But most of all, the depths of our depravity in sin. Turns out we don't even need Satan's help at all. We can get along by ruining our lives just fine. But the believer in Jesus knows that the grace of God cancels all of our boasting before God in personal achievement as it relates to anything in salvation. Paul t said this in Galatians 6.14. He says, but as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because without the cross, you and I don't have a prayer. Without the cross, we are lost for eternity. And all boasting and personal works is disqualified. It's discredited. It's just excluded from the Christian life. And grace also cancels all boasting, number two, by the principle of faith. By the principle of faith, Romans 3, 27b. He says, where then is boasting? Well, it's excluded. By what kind of law? By one of works? No, on the contrary, by the law of faith. Now, when he asks the question, by what kind of law, he's trying to tell you or to hint that in the Jewish system there were different kinds of law, the different species or different categories of law in the Jewish world. And so there are essentially three larger ones. Now, these are not the ones you may have heard about if you studied or you grew up studying the Westminster Confession. They usually uh, would, the Westminster Confession written in the 1600s would divide the Old Testament law in terms of ceremonial law. You know what that is, right? Like ritual law that governed the tabernacle. And then body politic laws or civil laws that governed the body politic. And then uh, moral laws like do not murder, do not... Uh, steal and kill and do all that terrible stuff, right? The problem with those divisions of laws is that they're not accurate. They're not quite right. Because all of those laws are act actually describe the same kind of law in the Jewish world. And you cannot meaningfully pull them apart the way that we do in systematic theology today. So I want to show you that. Uh, are you ready? I'm going to give you like a lecture on law. Do it. <laughs> yes. This is going to be fun. Okay, take out your pen and your bulletin and get ready to write. Burn up the page with some notes. Here we go. So the first kind of law that we need to understand that Jews understood in Jesus and Paul's day would be the laws that govern creation. The laws that govern creation. Now, today we would refer to those laws as the laws of nature, wouldn't we? Okay, the laws of nature or natural laws. These laws reflect God's creational design of the natural world. One of the hallmarks of the Jewish faith system, of the Jewish belief system, is that the natural world is not the same thing as the supernatural realm. 
And while these two realms are overlapping realms, they're not the same thing. The natural world isn't the supernatural world. And so what the Jew could do is look into the natural world and see that God in his providence had put certain processes in the natural world to providentially govern the world. Now, they didn't know anything about things like gravity or the strong, weak nuclear forces or electromagnetism or they didn't know anything about the 24 or so cosmological constants that make the universe a habitable place. Like, they didn't know anything about this. If they had known it, they would have assigned that into the category of natural law, the laws of nature. Now, if you break a law of nature, are you sinning? Are you sinning? Well, it depends. That depends if that law of nature also is accompanied by a moral decree. So if you get, for example, in an airplane and you travel in a jet from the east coast to the west coast or from the west coast to the east coast, you are defying the law of gravity, aren't you? He's for a time. You are. You're breaking the law. But are you a sinner? Even if you crash, you're not a sinner. Okay? So the, but there are some natural laws, though, that come with moral decrees. This is the second category, moral laws that govern conduct. So you have these sort of natural laws or laws of nature that govern creation, but then you also have these moral laws that govern human ethics or conduct. And these are laws that involve a moral decree and ought to either do a thing or not do a thing. Now, moral laws may involve a decree and design. That is to say, they are given to you, they are commands by God given to you, and they are tied to just the way things are, just the way God has designed the world. So it's a decree that is by design. You've been designed in such a way to operate, and God says, now you are to live this way. In 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 14, Paul asks this question, does nature not teach us? Now in that context, in 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen, he is talking about, ironically, uh, women cross-dressing and men cross-dressing. And in that context, he says, doesn't nature tell you that this is wrong? <laughs> right? He, he appeals to nature. So there are our laws now, moral laws, in which we can appeal to nature, but also a divine decree not to do it or to do it. You understand? And there are essentially two kinds of moral laws. So when we think of the Old Testament tabernacle or temple laws that govern the tabernacle sacrificial system, or when we think of the uh, tabernacle body politic, right? Their civil society was literally uh, built in little cul-de-sacs around the tabernacle itself. And so when we think of this sort of nation that is God's holy religious nation, the nation of Yahweh, when we think of all of the laws in the Old Testament that govern them, every decree, every moral command is a moral obligation, no matter how small or how inconsequential. If God says, pick up that stick and move it to the other side of the ro road, that now constitutes your moral duty. It's called obedience to the law, to God's moral decree. So understand that there are a couple of different kinds of these moral decrees, these moral obligations that we have, either to God or to one another. Many Old Testament laws are particular and temporary. So the reason why in the New Testament we don't practice a tabernacle or temple system 
is because the laws that govern the tabernacle or uh, temple system, they were particular to the post-Exodus community and Judaism up until the time of Christ in which now they've been fulfilled, which means they've been made obsolete. And the same thing is with the law of Jubilee. Have you ever read the law of Jubilee in Leviticus 25? Well, the law of Jubilee states that uh, you can take in a person who is an indentured to you, but every seven years or every cycle, every Jubilee cycle, about every 49 years, actually what you have to do is you have to manumit the land and you have to release the slave or release the indentured servant. When is the last time you did that? Right, you don't practice that, right? So understand that there are certain Old Testament laws that are particular to Judaism and they're designed, they've been built with a planned obsolescence like the iPhone in your pocket is designed to be supplanted by a new iPhone someday very soon. <laughs> okay? Okay, so you have many Old Testament laws that are particular and they were designed to be temporary that way. But you have some laws that are universal and permanent. This is where people get mixed up, man. You start reading passages like Romans chapter 1 or 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and you start saying, hey, listen, this is God's gold standard for human sexual relationships. And what do they do? They go back and quote you a law from the first category. They go back and say, well, look at these laws. Are they still in effect? No, actually, they're not. But this one is. This one that carries over into the New Testament. Now, these laws were designed to continue in perpetuity, like the Ten Commandments. Nine of the Ten Commandments are upheld in the New Testament. Nine of the Ten Commandments. What's the only one that's not, Daniel? Sabbath, right? And this is a fascinating conversation. If you want to have it, please talk to Daniel afterwards. <laughs> We have had endless discussions about this as a pastoral staff, but I'm telling you, nine of the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament are upheld in the New. Do not murder your neighbor. Do not commit adultery. But in addition to those commands, don't, don't create an idol. That's a pretty important one. But in addition to those commands, we also have moral decrees in the Old Testament that are not necessarily part of the Decalogue or what's called the Ten Commandments, but they are carried over into the New Testament. So you say, how do I know which is temporary and which is universal? You look at the New Testament. You see which ones the apostles upheld and continue to apply to the life of the church. Number three, you have wisdom laws that apply in emergent circumstances. Now, this is the law of wisdom and instruction. The word Torah can literally be translated. Many Old Testament scholars today are not translating the word Torah in the Old Testament as law. It normally is. They're beginning to translate it as instruction, discipleship instruction. And so this comes back to the fact that the word Torah, the word law, can also refer to wisdom principles. And this would be necessary. So the first kind that you have here is precedent legal laws or precedent laws. What is a precedent law? Uh, I wish Judge Oliver were here and we could ask him. But in the Old Testament, though, a precedent law, and in the New Testament, a precedent law is the kind of law that is, that is spelled out in a particular circumstance or situation but then in your circumstance or situation is similar to it, but you don't have an exact match, right? So I'll give you an example of this, Deuteronomy 24. So in Deuteronomy 24, 
These are Moses, this is Moses' statutes for men issuing women a certificate of divorce. Okay, it's called the certificate of divorce statute. Okay, now, um, Moses has already stipulated in Deuteronomy 22 that if a man and a woman are caught in adultery, they're to be dragged outside of the camp and stoned to death, left under a pile of rocks. So in the post-Exodus society, uh, the, 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 um, the crime of adultery was uh, answered with capital punishment. Okay, so when you get to Deuteronomy 24, Moses allows men to put their wives away due to what is called indecency or displeasure due to indecency. Now, Moses doesn't say anything else about it. Right there in that law, it's a sentence or two, and then he doesn't spell out what he means by displeasure due to indecency, right? So when you get to Jesus' day, okay, they get to Jesus' day, the Pharisees, there are two parties of Pharisees, okay? So one party of Pharisees is arguing vigorously that what Moses meant there in Deuteronomy 24 is that a man can give a woman a certificate of divorce even if she burns his toast, There'd be a lot of divorced people in here right now if, it, if that statue were that broad. And the other group of Pharisees recognized this. They said, no way, that would totally upend our culture. We can't do that. What Moses meant by indecency is sexual indecency, something short of adultery, which requires capital punishment. So they were squabbling about this. They were quibbling over what Moses meant and they could list 10 situations in their current culture that Moses doesn't bring up at all. So here you have this behavior code. It's applied to a specific situation in the Old Testament, but then there are all these emergent circumstances and, <laughs> and situations in which you have to try to somehow wisely apply the code. And now they want Jesus to come in and settle the debate for them. They're like, Rabbi, what do you think? And what does Jesus say? <laughs> This is hilarious. Oh, find this story later. It's one of the funniest stories in the New Testament. Uh, he says, well, I think you're both wrong. He goes, actually, let's go back. Here's what I'm in favor of. I'm on the side of Genesis chapter 1, which says that God made one man and one woman to be together for life. That's God's gold standard, and the only reason why Moses gave you a divorce certificate is because your hearts are wicked and evil. Imagine that being your answer. Right? So these are legal precedent laws. You're taking a law, a code, that was expressed for a particular situation, and you're trying to wisely apply it now to other similar kinds of situations that you don't have specified in the Old Testament. You also have legal principles or doctrines. Legal principles or doctrines. So a wisdom law can actually be a paradigm, a principle, a framework. And these govern application. First century Jewish historian, for example, talked about the principles of war. And in the word principles that he uses there is the Greek word for law. It's the word namoi. Uh, of course, these are unwritten, they're, but they're stated. They're the principles of war. A first century um, philosopher, Philo, Jewish philosopher Philo, talked about the principles of music that God is embedded into nature. And there the word principle is the word namo, it's the word laws. So sometimes the idea of law in a Jewish context can mean a principle. And this is likely 
what Paul is saying here. This is likely how he is using that word here in this context. He's saying this. He's saying the principle of justification by faith is the basis upon which you and I stand justified before God. It's not the principle or the framework or the doctrine of religious works. He sums it up in Romans 3, 28. He says, for we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. There you go. Now, next week, Paul is going to talk about his precedent. Paul is going to talk about his example. Paul is going to talk about the architect or the archetype of justifying faith, which will be Abraham. Thirdly, grace cancels all boasting because there is one God who justifies Jew and Gentile. So neither Jew nor Gentile could stand before God and boast in their own religious works because there's only one God and there's only one way in which he justifies both groups. Verse 29, he says, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, Gentiles too. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So there aren't two systems of salvation. There's not like one system of salvation for the Jews like in the Great Tribulation. Have you heard that, right? And then one system of salvation for the Gentiles, which is justification by faith. No. What Paul is saying is there is one God, and that one God has one system. And it's salvation, justification, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But now he appeals to the oneness of God. What he's saying here to his countrymen, to his Jews uh, his kinsman of the flesh, he's, what he's trying to say is this. Listen, you can't have it both ways. You can't be inconsistent. You can't, on the one hand, argue with your Gentile neighbors and tell them that their gods are no gods at all and that there's only one true God of the entire universe and that he is the maker of Jew and Gentile alike. But, by the way, he doesn't have a system of salvation for you. He's saying, nope. This one God is the maker of us all, and he has decided to justify all by faith. Excuse me. Now I have just too many passages uh, from the Old Testament where the Old Testament makes this claim, Old Testament and New make this claim, that there is only one creator God of the universe, but I have a few choice ones, and I just got to share them. I feel the need to share. So are you ready? Here we go. Deuteronomy 32, 39. God says, now see that I alone am he. There is no God but me. Isaiah 45, 14 and 18, Isaiah says this, for this is what the sovereign Lord says, the creator of the heavens, the God who formed the earth and made it, the one who established it. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Watch this one, man. Nehemiah 9 will blow your hair back. He says, you... Lord, sovereign Lord, are the only God. You created the heavens and the highest heavens with all the stars, the earth, and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and all of the stars of heaven worship you. What this ancient Jew is trying to say is that the entirety of creation as I understand it, earth and heaven The universe in his own language has been made by this one God of heaven and there is no other. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 4 and 6, he says about eating food sacrificed to idols, then we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. 
There is one God, the Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. Powerful statement. And then lastly, 1 Timothy 1.17, I'll give you this one. Uh, he says, now the, to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul reminds, reminds the Roman uh, Jews of this. This is what he reminds them of. He says, listen, you're a Jew. You know the truth. You know what's true. There's only one God of the universe. There's only one God who made everything in the spectrum of creation, and that one God has given us one system of salvation. It's justification by faith, and it's nothing else. There aren't two different systems here. Number four, the conclusion. The principle of justification by faith upholds Moses' law. Now, he anticipates another objection. He had started this chapter, if you recall, with a series of anticipated objections. Like after chapter one and two, he, he knew that his Jewish friends there in Rome would be thinking, okay, hold on. Aren't we the covenant people? I mean, he had this series of objections. Now he saves his last for the last line in the chapter. Essentially, he says, now, what then? Do we nullify the law through faith? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The, the Greek phrase here is megenoita. It means heavens no. No way. On the contrary, we uphold the law. How does the Christian faith uphold the law? You would think it would be against the law. You would think it would abolish the law, but it doesn't. In fact, we uphold the purpose for which the law was given, but that's the key. You have to understand what is the purpose with, for which the law was given. So how does the principle of faith, justification by faith, uphold the principle of the law? While the works of the law do not contribute to our justification, that doesn't mean they don't play any role in carrying us along to the shores of God's saving grace. I'll say it again. While the works of the law do not contribute anything to our final justification, that doesn't mean that the law has no purpose or doesn't play any role in carrying us along to the shores of God's free grace. Indeed, the law plays a vital role. To know the gospel, you have to know the law. Paul says this in Romans 3.20. The principle of justification by faith upholds the law by bringing conviction to sin. He says the knowledge of sin, in verse 20, comes through the law. How do you become saved? You have to be saved from sin. You have to confess your sin. How do you know you're a sinner? By the law. The law tells you this is how tall you have to be. And you're not this tall. You don't measure up. The principle of justification by faith also upholds the law by revealing that our sins condemn us. Chapter 4, verse 14, he says this, because the law produces wrath. What does the law produce in you? Just a, a joy, a desire to obey? No. It tells you you're a sinner, and it tells you that the judgment, the consequences for your sin is God's wrath, his condemnation, his just retribution for sin. Justification by faith also upholds the law, he says, by constraining culture from moral oblivion. Galatians 3.19, he says, he asks this question, why then the law? Why was the law given? 
It was given, he says, it was added for the sake of transgressions. In other, words, in other words, God saw the human race rushing headlong into moral oblivion, and he didn't want to destroy us the way he had already done previously in a flood, except for one family. And so God gave, he instituted the moral law in Judaism to stop, to put on the brakes in the human race to stop us from running into moral darkness as fast as we could absolutely go. And then it's also been given to foreshadow its own fulfillment in Matthew chapter five. Jesus said, I, I don't, do not think that I've come to abolish or annul the law and the prophets. I haven't come to annul them, I've come to fill them full. I've come to fill, up, fill them up. I've come to bring them to their intended completion. So Jesus has come to fulfill them and the law foreshadows its own fulfillment. Romans chapter 10, later we will see that Paul says that Christ is the end of the law. What does he mean by that? Christ is the goal. Christ is where the law was always taking us. It was always taking us to Jesus. And then lastly, justification by faith upholds the law by governing the life of those who are now filled and transformed by the Holy Spirit. Look at Romans 8, three through four. I'll put this on the screen. He says, for what the law was powerless to do, understand the law doesn't have power. The law can only inform you of the standard. It can only show you that you're condemned under the standard, but the law was powerless to save you. And what the law was powerless to do because, God, because it was weakened uh, by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. There's the atonement. And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but live according to the spirit. Living according to the spirit means what? It means following the law of love. It means following the greatest two commandments in the New Testament, which all the law and the prophets are summed up in, aren't they? It means to love the Lord your God supremely above all else and to love those made in God's image the way you love yourself. And everything you and I do comes through the filter of those two supreme categories, those two commands. Now, the person who knows the law and loves the law and would love to be able to obey it all just can't. That's what Romans 7 is about. That's why at the end of Romans 7, Paul cries out, wretched man that I am who will rescue me from this hopeless condition. Read it, what's the hopeless condition? I know the law, I want to obey the law, but as a Jew without the Holy Spirit, I am enslaved to sin. But who will rescue me from this wretched condition? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of sin and death has been abolished, it's been replaced. That principle has now been replaced by the law of life in Christ Jesus. You and I live according to the law. It's the law of life. It's the law of love. Give me some amens. Yeah, I mean this. Thank you, Paul. That's such good news. And so what does this message that Paul wants to bring to us about boasting not being appropriate for our Christians in any sense. What does it do for us? I'll give you three points of application. We'll just land here. The first one is this, reminding ourselves of our dire need for grace regularly inspires a life of humility. And this is just the opposite of a life of boasting before God. Boastful religion hinders our worship. 
By contrast, the truly humble soul receives what it so desperately needs from a righteous and holy God, his righteousness, his goodness, his grace, and this keeps us on our knees before an almighty God. We are reminded that I bring nothing to the table to bargain with. He's brought it all. And this helps us to live in the light of humility, the freedom of humility. It also, the next point is we can obey God's commands more fully. As spirit-filled Christians, we are able to view God's works in proper perspective. God's works, the good works he wants us to do are the outgrowth of something he has planted in our hearts. And we have been set free by his kindness and his mercy, and we can work tirelessly now now for the kingdom and avoiding two opposite extremes. One is the pride of boasting in our own achievements, and the other is the neglect of the good. God doesn't want us to be lazy, unfaithful servants, and he also doesn't want us to be, our lives to be filled with braggadocia. And lastly, we become more appealing in our witness to Christ. Paul said this to close it out, Titus chapter 2, verse 10. This is what he says. He says, godly Christians make the gospel more attractive in every way. That's what godly Christians do. Because filled with the Holy Spirit and transformed by God's Holy Spirit, living according to the law of life in Christ Jesus, the law of love, you and I can now live before our peers in a godly way, and it makes the gospel, using his word, attractive. People will be attractive to a person whose life matches their confession. Amen? Well, let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Father, we thank you for this uh, sure word. We thank you for the gift of your grace, your kindness, and your mercy. We don't deserve it. We couldn't boast in it other than the fact that you've given it, that you've bestowed it upon us. And God, we, we come with no, we confess today that we come with no personal works of achievement. We don't come with a bragging heart. We don't come and stand before you thinking that we'll be made acceptable because we've been good enough or relatively okay. No, we know that we're sinners and and we're lost. We're hopeless without your grace. And God, we come by a principle of faith. Today, Lord God, we just embrace faith. If you're here this morning and you haven't done this yet, you've been trusted in religious works and you haven't trusted in being justified in God's courtroom by faith, would you embrace faith? him by faith today. Trust in Jesus, Jesus alone. Would you do it? And God, we also thank you that you've given us your law. We thank you that you've given us your moral decrees, which constitute our moral obligations and duties toward one another. And Lord, would you help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to live up to your word, to be holy, and let that be the outgrowth of grace. Let that be the outgrowth of this amazing, amazing work of grace that you have done in us. And so, God, we confess all that we are today. We throw ourselves at your mercy and pray that you would tirelessly work through us to that end as we live out our faith in the world and our community. In Jesus' name, amen.